Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July-August 2017 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Schizophrenia is a serious mental illness associated with hallucinations, delusions, and significant functional impairment. Antipsychotic medications are usually effective in controlling these symptoms, and ongoing treatment prevents or delays relapse. Studies have shown that discontinuation of antipsychotics substantially increases the risk of relapse, so all guidelines for the treatment of schizophrenia recommend continuous treatment. Antipsychotics are available as daily oral medications and as long-acting injectable formulations. Compared to their oral counterparts, long-acting injectable formulations release the antipsychotic into the plasma for long periods of time. It has been hypothesized that the longer duration in plasma relative to oral formulations may delay relapse upon treatment discontinuation. To test this hypothesis, researchers conducted a post-hoc analysis of medication withdrawal data from three similarly designed, Janssen-sponsored, multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized withdrawal studies. Three different formulations of paliperidone were tested in adults with schizophrenia. Oral modified release paliperidone, a formulation injected once monthly, and a formulation injected once every three months. The analysis compared median time to relapse across the treatment withdrawal arms of the three studies. Results suggested that longer half-life is associated with longer time to relapse. The authors found that 50% of patients remained relapse-free for about two months after withdrawal of oral paliperidone. The same was true about six months after withdrawal of once-monthly paliperidone and for about 13 months after withdrawal from the formulation administered every three months. The authors conclude that long-acting injectable antipsychotics may provide substantial delays over oral equivalents in times to relapse when patients discontinue therapy. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the July-August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The vast majority of children diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, will at some point in their lives be treated with stimulants. Nonetheless, little is known about potential long-term effects of stimulant treatment, either positive or negative, on the developing brain. Lasting effects on brain function, as opposed to brain structure, are particularly understudied. Researchers from the Netherlands, funded in part by the National Institutes of Health, recently investigated brain activation patterns in a large group of adolescents with ADHD who had a wide array of stimulant treatment histories. Using advanced data-driven classification techniques, they distinguished two large and two small treatment groups. Participants range from those who received no treatment at all to those who were treated early with a high dose over many years. On testing day, participants did not take stimulants and performed a reward task while inside an MRI scanner. Even though participants were stimulant-free during scanning, their treatment history predicted brain activation patterns. 
Participants in the early and intense treatment group showed more activation in the supplementary motor area and dorsal anterior cingulate cortex compared to those who started treatment later and received lower dosages. These brain regions are important for cognitive control, among other functions. Therefore, it may be that after early and intensive stimulant treatment, patients with ADHD might benefit from enhanced cognitive control. In turn, better cognitive control when experiencing something pleasant, such as being rewarded, may explain why this same group is the least likely to develop substance use problems later on. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, is a chronic psychiatric illness that often does not remit with treatment. A randomized, double-blind study was conducted to evaluate the effect of N-acetylcysteine as an adjuvant treatment for OCD. This substance is usually known for its role in the treatment of acetaminophen toxicity, but N-acetylcysteine also has the potential to interfere with the equilibrium of a neurotransmitter known as glutamate, the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. It also has a benign profile regarding tolerability, cost, and risk. In a study sponsored by a Brazilian governmental agency, researchers added 3 grams per day of N-acetylcysteine or placebo to the medications patients were already taking and compared symptom severity before and after treatment initiation. Most patients improved after 16 weeks. However, for core obsessive-compulsive symptoms, N-acetylcysteine was not shown to be more effective than placebo. However, the authors found that it may help with anxiety symptoms unrelated to OCD. Future studies are warranted to evaluate whether N-acetylcysteine might be useful for treating anxiety and other psychiatric conditions. The authors note that for OCD, however, the treatment combination with the most solid evidence remains serotonin reuptake inhibitors and behavior therapy. The apolipoprotein E gene has inconsistently been identified as a genetic risk factor for depression, and some preliminary results have found that it may also play a role in vascular depression. Research to address the role of the apolipoprotein E gene in the expression of depression with or without cerebrovascular burden is often underpowered and uses methods that may underrepresent these relationships. To shed more light on the role of this gene, researchers from the University of Central Florida assessed the role of the apolipoprotein E gene in the expression of depression and in vascular depression. They utilized data from the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study from 1993 when participants were 53 years old to 2011 when they were 71 years old. Results show that risk conferred by the apolipoprotein E genotype is associated with clinically significant depressive symptoms, but only as participants age into their 70s. This relationship was not evident when participants were younger. The apolipoprotein E gene did not impact the relationship between cerebral vascular burden and depression. The authors conclude that while these findings do not suggest the apolipoprotein E is a depression gene per se, they do raise interesting questions about how the gene may interact with environmental, medical, and other genetic risk factors. 
Compelling data suggests a link between mental illness and violence and homicide among both victims and offenders. Previous research has identified non-adherence to medication as a risk factor for violence in psychotic patients. To date, no study of any biological or behavioral phenotype has combined data on dispensed prescriptions with results from forensic toxicology to assess adherence to pharmacotherapy until now. To conduct such an analysis, researchers in Sweden linked a nationwide prescription registry with a forensic database to compare risks of homicide offending and victimization associated with non-adherence to or recreational use of psychotropic medication. The connection between mental illness and violence is well established. A recent Swedish registry study showed that people suffering from psychosis or bipolar disorder were less likely to commit acts of violence after having filled prescriptions for psychotropic medication. In the present study, homicide offenders and victims were compared with a control group consisting of people who had died in vehicle-related accidents. Researchers found that non-adherence to antidepressants conferred a six-fold risk of homicide offending, while non-adherence to antipsychotics or mood stabilizers conferred a seven-fold risk. Also, both recreational and medicinal use of GABAergic hypnotics conferred two-fold to five-fold risks of involvement in homicide as either offender or victim. The authors conclude that non-adherence to medications used to treat affective and psychotic disorders seemingly elevates the risk of homicide offending. Therefore, vigilance regarding adherence to medications prescribed for these disorders, as well as restrictiveness regarding legal and illegal access to addictive hypnotics, might contribute to a reduction of homicidal violence. Delirium is a common mental illness seen at most hospital admission offices. Patients who experience delirium could be subject to the labeling and stigmatization associated with mental illness, but researchers and clinicians who treat delirium patients often pay little attention to this stigma. The authors of this study, with funding from the Korean government, investigated factors related to perceived stigma and quality of life in patients who have recovered from delirium. This prospective cohort study included 128 patients who completed a follow-up assessment after their recovery. Perceived stigma was assessed using the perceived stigma of delirium scale, and quality of life was measured by the European Quality of Life Visual Analog Scale. The authors found that patients who had a history of depression could recall their experiences with delirium and had a longer duration from delirium detection to recovery reported a greater degree of perceived stigma following recovery than did those without these characteristics. Additionally, at the follow-up assessment, subjective quality of life was associated with the ability to recall one's delirium experiences and the use of antipsychotics. Perceived stigma had a significant negative correlation with quality of life in these patients. Based on these results, the authors recommend that clinicians pay closer attention to perceived stigma in patients with delirium especially in those patients who are able to recall their delirium experiences or who have a history of depression. Providing information 
sharing the experiences of patients with delirium during recovery and rapid control of delirium symptoms may help reduce stigma, but the impact of these interventions require further evaluation. Do you use your smartphone too much? For many, smartphones are necessary for daily life, but some users become addicted to their devices. Beyond spending too much time on apps, the inability to resist the impulse to use the smartphone can lead to actual harm or interfere with life. Until now, the detection of smartphone addiction has depended solely on self-rating questionnaires or clinical interviews by psychiatrists. Recently, researchers in Taiwan incorporated data generated by a mobile app into the detection process for smartphone addiction. 79 college students were invited to install an app on their smartphone for a month that recorded the patterns of their smartphone use. Psychiatrists later interviewed all participants to assess and diagnose smartphone addiction. One set of diagnoses was based entirely on information obtained from the clinical interview. Another set was assisted by the use of specific app-generated parameters that had been proven to reflect smartphone use patterns. The researchers found that the app-incorporated diagnosis that combined both psychiatric interview and app-recorded data demonstrated substantial accuracy for smartphone addiction. The authors point out that in addition to increasing diagnostic accuracy, the app developed by this research team can increase users' awareness of actual time spent on the smartphone. One of the most popular provisions of the Affordable Care Act allowed young adults to remain on their parents' health insurance plans until their 26th birthday. Young adults carry a high burden of mental illness, but have historically had the lowest rates of insurance coverage. The present study determined the impact of the 2010 dependent coverage expansion on insurance coverage and health outcomes of young adults with mental illness. The authors used data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health collected from 2008 to 2013. They compared young adults aged 19 to 25 who were affected by the policy with 26 to 34-year-olds who were not affected by the policy. Following the policy's implementation in 2010, private insurance coverage increased by 11.7 percentage points and uninsurance decreased by 8.9 percentage points among 19 to 25-year-old young adults with mental illness relative to 26 to 34-year-olds. In addition, rates of outpatient mental health treatment increased among 19 to 25-year-olds compared to 26 to 34 year olds. Those with more serious mental illness were also less likely to report that mental health needs were unmet due to cost after the policy took effect. Finally, the analysis indicated that fewer young adults with mental illness reported fair or poor overall health. Taken together, the results suggest that the Affordable Care Act's dependent coverage expansion led to increased insurance coverage and mental health treatment and improved self-reported health among young adults with mental illness.
In this study, which is our CME offering for this month, the authors set out to determine whether neurocognitive performance and clinical outcomes can be enhanced by a mindfulness intervention in older adults with stress disorders and cognitive complaints. Sponsored by the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, researchers found that an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course reduced depression, worry, and anxiety in a group of older adults with clinical depression or anxiety disorders. The course may also have improved participants' memory. The mindfulness course, which included meditation and light yoga, worked more successfully than a health education course that provided information on nutrition and other methods of improving health or managing medical conditions. Participants maintained their improvements for at least six months following the end of the course, and most reported that they continued their meditation practice. Among participants with high levels of the stress hormone cortisol, the mindfulness course reduced cortisol more effectively than the health education course. The authors conclude that mindfulness programs, which are readily available in most communities, may benefit older adults with stress disorders and concerns about their memory. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the July-August table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Traumatic events can cause sleep disturbances and mental disorders. However, little is known about the causal relationship between sleep disturbances and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and depression in adolescents. In the present study, Chinese researchers, with support from Chinese institutions, examined the concurrent and longitudinal associations between sleep disturbances, PTSD, and depressive symptoms in a large cohort of over 1,500 adolescents exposed to the Wenchuan earthquake that occurred in China in 2008. Sleep, PTSD, and depression were assessed at 12 months and 24 months after the earthquake. About 40% of participants reported sleep disturbances and depressive symptoms, and 23% and 14% reported PTSD symptoms at 12 and 24 months. The prevalence rates of PTSD and depressive symptoms significantly increased with sleep disturbances and short sleep duration. After adjusting for covariates, sleep disturbances were significantly associated with an 80% increased risk for PTSD and a 40% increased risk for depressive symptoms one year later. Furthermore, the risk for persistent PTSD and depressive symptoms from 12 to 24 months was more than doubled among adolescents who had sleep disturbances at 12 months after the earthquake, relative to those who did not. These findings demonstrate that sleep disturbances, PTSD, and depressive symptoms are common in adolescents after exposure to a traumatic earthquake. They highlight the importance of early assessment and treatment of sleep disturbances in prevention and intervention of PTSD and depression. Difficulties in cognition have been identified as common and persistent in persons with major depressive disorder. A limitation of existing depression scales, for example, the PHQ-9, is that they do not sufficiently evaluate cognitive symptoms insofar as they do not capture the complexity and circumstance of cognitive interference in day-to-day life. Numerous comprehensive neurocognitive batteries are available to assess cognition. 
These, however, are often not accessible, are expensive and cumbersome, require expertise in administration and interpretation, lack digital availability, are not scalable, and are not available at the point of care. The Thinkit is the first available screening tool for cognitive dysfunction in adults with major depressive disorder that is free of charge, digital and self-administered, integrating both self-rated and objective measures of cognition. In this study with funding from Lundbeck, researchers evaluated 100 adult subjects with major depressive disorder and 100 healthy controls with the Thinkit tool. They found that the Thinkit reliably detected cognitive dysfunction in patients versus controls. Both the overall Thinkit and its individual component test demonstrated acceptable validity. Subjects in a qualitative survey indicated high satisfaction with and perceived value of the Thinkit regarding its impact on appropriateness and quality of care received. Overall, the Thinkit is brief in administration, approximately 10 minutes, correlates with psychosocial function, is scalable, and provides actionable information as it relates to cognitive dysfunction. The authors recommend that the Thinkit tool be made a component of measurement-based care in the assessment and treatment of adults with major depressive disorder. The past decade has seen a significant increase in the use of psychotropic monotherapy and polypharmacy for youths with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. It remains unclear, however, if the age at first diagnosis of ADHD relates to subsequent psychotropic use patterns. Using Medicaid encounters and pharmacy billing records from 29 states for the years 1999 to 2006, the authors examined data from over 16,000 youths who were 3 to 14 years of age at the time they were diagnosed with a new episode of ADHD. These children and adolescents were followed for five years to assess subsequent prescriptions for three medication classes, antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, or psychotropic polypharmacy. This study was supported in part by the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality. One-fourth of the sample received subsequent polypharmacy at least once during the five years of follow-up. Children who were diagnosed with ADHD between the ages of three and nine reported an almost two-fold increase in the use of antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, and polypharmacy during all five years of the follow-up. This increase was not present among youths diagnosed in the older ages. The upward trajectory of the three outcomes remains significant in ADHD occurrence among preschoolers without a corresponding effect among adolescents. The effect was strongest in children diagnosed at age three. About one-third of follow-up time with polypharmacy showed no mental disorder diagnosis other than ADHD. In view of these results, the authors recommend more research to identify whether age at ADHD onset is related to increased awareness and appreciation of the disorder, interactions between concomitant mental disorders, or the increase of inaccurate diagnoses. The separation of these factors may help reduce unneeded polypharmacy. The memory-enhancing drug methylene blue administered after extinction training improves fear extinction retention in rats and humans with claustrophobia. 
The next generation of precision medicine will use targeted drugs such as methylene blue to augment behavioral-based brain change in disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. In a double-blind randomized controlled trial funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, augmentation of an abbreviated version of prolonged exposure therapy specifically five 50-minute imaginal exposure psychotherapy sessions with methylene blue, enhanced PTSD treatment response and quality of life compared to imaginal exposure with placebo. Consistent with the memory-enhancing effects of methylene blue, individuals with better working memory benefited most from this augmentation. Based on patterns of response, shifting augmentation of methylene blue to later sessions when individuals are starting to experience therapeutic gains may further enhance observed effects. Finally, patients with PTSD undergoing the brief imaginal exposure intervention, either with methylene blue or with placebo, had similar benefits to those who underwent a standard prolonged exposure protocol. The results are preliminary but encouraging for continued exploration of novel therapeutic agents such as methylene blue to come alongside behavioral therapies to boost therapeutic gains. The authors conclude that a brief imaginal exposure intervention may offer a potentially viable treatment option for patients with PTSD. In the most recent installments of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade continues his review of the use of ketamine for depression. Part 4 of the series looks at dosing, route of administration, and treatment duration, while Part 5 discusses possible interactions of ketamine with other medications. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the July-August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the July-August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.